Good morning, folks, and thank you for tuning in to The Global Current, Seton Hall's School of Diplomacy podcast. Each week, we break down a new topic in global affairs and have a conversation with students to analyze different perspectives. This is your host, Eric Bunce. Today, we're discussing the North Korea and its recent missile launches. But before we dive into it, let's check in with this week's news briefer, Annie Hebel, who will update us on news headlines from around the globe. Annie? Thanks, Eric. Several high-profile officials in Jordan have been arrested by the country's government against accusations of an alleged coup plot against King Abdullah II. The arrested individuals include Basim Abdullah, a longtime confidant of King Abdullah II and former advisor to Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salim, and Sarif Hassan bin Zayed, a member of the royal family. The fate of former Jordanian Crown Prince Hamza bin Hussein remains unclear. But in a video released by the New York Times, he claims to have been placed under house arrest. I had a visit from the chief of uh, the general staff of the Jordanian Armed Forces this morning, in which he informed me that I was not allowed to go out to communicate with people or to meet with them, because that in the meetings that I had been present in or on social media relating to visits that I've made, there's been criticism of the government or the, uh, the king. The U.S. and Jordan's Arabian allies have condemned the alleged plot. The U.S. has announced that it is lifting Trump-era sanctions against the International Criminal Court prosecutor Fatou Bensouda, which barred her entry into the country. The sanctions were put in place in protest to an ICC investigation into alleged war crimes committed by U.S. troops in Afghanistan, as the U.S. is not a member of the organization. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called the sanctions, quote, inappropriate and ineffective, end quote, and expressed a need for more direct communication between the U.S. and the ICC moving forward. New satellite images show that Russia is building up troops along the Ukrainian border at an unprecedented rate. Russia has warned NATO against sending troops to assist the member country as sporadic low-level clashes continue along the tumultuous border. The U.S. and other European allies have expressed support for the Ukraine, and the country recently announced upcoming joint military drills with NATO. 50 people were killed and over 200 more injured in a train accident in Taiwan. The train derailed in a tunnel, causing carriages to hit the tunnel walls. Authorities believe a truck slid down a hill from a construction site and hit the train, which was carrying 490 passengers. The driver of the truck has been arrested. Investigations are underway regarding why the truck's brakes were not engaged. According to Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, an advocacy group based in Thailand, over 550 people have been killed in protests since the February military coup in Myanmar. Over 2,500 people have been arrested, many of them journalists, activists, students, government officials, and even some children. CNN reports that the UN Special Envoy to Myanmar told top officials in a UN Security Council meeting that, quote, a bloodbath is imminent, end quote, in the region. The military has declared a ceasefire against armed ethnic groups. However, the ceasefire does not apply to anyone who disrupts government functioning. Many analysts fear that a civil war in the country is imminent. Thank you, Annie. Now for today's topic. On March 25th, North Korea launched newly developed tactical ballistic missiles toward Japan. The test is seen as a threat by many regional and international powers. These launches also present the first challenge by Kim Jong-un's regime to the Biden administration. North Korea has long been the source of a considerable instability in Eastern Asia. This test is a continuation of long-lasting antagonisms between U.S. allies and North Korea dating all the way back 
to the Korean War. What has been the response to this recent test, and what challenges does North Korea continue to present? Joining me today to discuss this and more are two of our own Seton Hall students. Our domestic analyst for today is Jackie Ballard. Welcome back, Jackie. Hello, Eric. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for coming on. And today's international analyst is Harshana Gorhu. Welcome, Harshana. Hi, Eric. Happy to be here. Thank you. Okay, so let's jump right into it. Jackie, I want to start with you. Can you give us a brief overview of like the the what, you know, and 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 the when and, and the how of the of this test? Yes. So as you mentioned, this test was conducted on March 25th when North Korea launched two newly developed tactically guided missiles into the Sea of Japan. Each of these missiles carried a 2.5 ton live warhead that correctly hit the, stimu- the simulated targets at a range of approximately 400 kilometers. Domestic analysts have seen several possible motivations for these strikes, such as attention grabbing, a display of power, a threat especially to the new Biden administration, or an attempt to present another type of conventional weapon that it could bargain with. Because of these, we've seen both severe international and domestic consequences. And. What is special uh, about these missiles? Is there anything new, any new developments in in North Korean nuclear technology? So North Korea has an extremely advanced missile program. Um, The last nuclear test, which was conducted in 2017, is thought to have been a thermonuclear bomb. And estimates of its explosive power range from about 50 to 300 kilotons. In contrast, this bomb that they just launched from these two new missiles were only two and a half tons, which, as we can see, carries nowhere near the same amount of explosive power. But they're still strategically important to North Korea because of the message they send, whether this is as a threat to the United States, as we mentioned before, or whether it is just as a display of power. So because of this, um, we can see that their technologies are advancing and it carries a severe consequence for the United States. Okay, thank you. Harshan, I want to go to you. These missiles were launched roughly towards Japan. What what has been Japan's reaction thus far? Right. So I think it should be noted that the two ballistic missiles that were launched actually landed right outside Japan's economic waters. And in terms of reaction, so we see that the Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga commented on the issue and he said that um, this presents, quote, a threat to peace and stability in Japan and the region, and it also violates UN Security Council resolution, end quote. And I should also note that these resolutions actually bans the test of ballistic missiles, which um, North Korea recently conducted. And I also just want to follow up on a point that Jacqueline just made, is that um, the recent missiles are new, uh, two new types of tactical guided projectiles, which are proof of North Korea's modernizing arsenal, because these are types of missiles that it did not uh, possess in the past. And in 2017, it launched ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, for the first time, which further fueled concerns about its um, enhancing and modernizing nuclear arsenal. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and you mentioned the UN there. Uh, has the United Nations had any any reaction to this test as well? Right. So the UN actually held a closed door discussion last week, and this was done upon the request um, by the United States. And the Security Council also met and renewed the Board of Experts, which monitors sanctions against North Korea. 
And at this point, there has not been much um, public statements released by the UN, but um, the US ambassador to the UN has said that they're uh, monitoring the situation and they are going to hold further discussions on this issue. Right, so both international and regional responses to these tests. Jackie, uh, let's go back to you. We kind of already mentioned it briefly, uh, but from what I understand, this is far from North Korea's first nuclear test. Um, how have they been using uh, nuclear tests in the past to 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 uh, bring about their foreign policy and what role does it play? Yes, I'm glad that you brought that up. So under the role of Kim Jong-un, he has developed an extremely strong nuclear weapons program and he keeps pushing for bigger and more powerful weapons and keeps expanding North Korea's military. Um, since 1998, North Korea has launched six missiles over the Japanese archipelago and even as recently as February 2016, they launched a low orbit satellite over Japanese territory, even after Jap Japan specifically warned it not to. So we see that this is driving a lot of their foreign policy in the fact that they're using it as a threat to other nations, um, especially because Kim Jong-un is seen as an unstable leader. So leaders of other nations are unsure how he'll react to this, if there is possibility of nuclear war, or if he's just using it as a way to gain power. Right. So, yeah, it's kind of that whole madman theory with, with Kim Jong-un. And I am interested a little bit more if we could we could stay on Kim Jong-un. What's his motivation uh, for doing this? What does he hope to gain? What is driving North Korea? What are their interests in this conflict? So I'm glad that you mentioned the madman theory. Specifically, this is a strategy in which leaders create an image of belligerence and unpredictability to force adversaries to tread more carefully. And we can see this in the regime of Kim Jong-un. He justifies his family's dynastic rule by saying that the nuclear arsenal that his government has built is a, quote, treasure sword that is keeping North Korea safe from foreign invasion. And he justifies this by saying that North Korea is under constant threat of American attack. He no longer holds any expectations for dialogue with Washington unless it makes an offer that satisfies his government. However, his government has been extremely uncooperative with the United States, as we've seen within the Trump and Biden administration. Mm, so it's almost like a, a siege mentality uh, within North Korea, not to oversimplify it, uh, but I'm not wrong in saying that, right? Yes, you are correct. Okay, and then I wanna get back to the test for a second. Um, we already mentioned it a little bit, Harshana, but how has the Biden administration reacted? I mentioned in my introduction, this is their first real tests from North Korea. Um, how has the Biden reaction, uh, administration reacted thus far? So in terms of reaction, um, President Biden has been very clear that they are monitoring the situation and they are deliberating responses in case the North chooses to escalate. And the allies are also open to negotiating, but are very clear about the end goal being denuclearization. And I think it's also worth mentioning that the Biden uh, administration is currently facing renewed pressure concerning North Korea, um, because as you said, you know, these are the first uh, missiles that were conducted under Biden's administration, but there have been numerous that were done during uh, the Trump administration and notably the ICBMs in 2017. So I, I think it's also no, uh, worth mentioning that um, Officials of the Biden administration have announced that the review, their North Korea policy review, is um, imposing a hard line on human rights issues. 
uh, and denuclearization and um, sanctions. So I think it's a very interesting dynamic on how they're going to react and what their policy review is going to be about in terms of um, the missile tests. Yeah, seeing this this Biden administration reaction, I'm I'm reminded, or I want to be reminded of, of where the source of this deep distrust and antagonism between the U.S. and North Korea comes from. This conflict and the tense relations between the U.S. and North Korea are rooted in the Korean War of the 50s, when the U.S. began military intervention in South Korea, and the relations have been largely defined since then by the U.S. military presence in South Korea, along with the joint United States-South Korean military exercises in the South China Sea. Um, in addition to this, the United States has imposed sanctions against North Korea for its nuclear program, and North Korea has demanded that the United States eliminates its nuclear arsenal, which could potentially reach the Korean Peninsula. Because of this, relations have been generally hostile. We've especially seen a resurgence of this after years of negotiations under President Trump to reach a nuclear-free Korea, relations between the United States and North Korea collapsed again in February 2019 when these talks failed. Hmm, interesting. So it, it goes back decades, but it's still refreshing uh, constantly. You mentioned South Korea. Um, what is their role in in this conflict? Because, I mean, they, they share the peninsula with North Korea. Uh, Harshana, you want to take that? Or actually, Jackie, you want to take that one? Um, North Korea claims to be the legitimate ruler of the entire peninsula and adjacent lands, and because of that, they've seen a lot of tension with South Korea. Um, in addition to that, South Korea has began developing its own nuclear weapons to reduce its dependence on the United States, which has, because it is seeking to establish itself as a greater world power and protect itself from North Korea. And because of this, these countries have been developing weapons tit for tat, which has been resulting in disintegrating relations and may lead to possible conflict. We can especially see the results of this in the demilitarized zone, which is a zone in between the two countries that acts as a border, um, however, is not inhabited by either side. Yeah, and you want to go off that, Harshana, or? Yeah, and I think I'm probably going to talk about some recent reactions that South Korea has had to the nuclear test. Um, so the South's National Security Council also expressed deep concern about the issue. And in this case, I think it should also be noted that President Moon, uh, South Korean President Moon, has been pursuing better ties with the North. And yet they also issued a, a somewhat, I would say, rare criticism of North Korea following the launches. Um, and, you know, South Korean pre uh, the South Korean uh, president has also relayed with President Biden about strengthening um, their relations and making sure that they are both in line with how to tackle North Korea. So it's it doesn't necessarily put South Korean president in a tough spot, but he definitely has to balance both skills here because he still has to maintain good ties with North Korea, but he also has to think about his relationship with the US. Yeah, so South Korea is kind of in the very uncomfortable position of being the go-between between North Korea uh, and the United States. They got to strike a fine line there. Uh, it's also worth noting that um, South Korea is a very export-driven economy, and having a neighbor to the north that 
uh, has a lot of really strong rhetoric and nuclear weapons and everyone views as a little insane is not particularly good for having stable uh, export relations. So they're really seeking stability and they're struggling to find it. And I want to go to the, the fifth nation that has a role in this whole conflict, and that is uh, China. What role does, does China play in this whole messy equation? Uh, right. So I'm going to start by saying that uh, China is North Korea's only major ally. And now scholars are actually raising questions about China's role in North Korea's um, sanctions evasion, um, which has enabled the North to conduct further enhanced military activities. And scholars are also proposing that Biden's policy review should consider the administration's strategy on China um, when making a decision on how to tackle North Korea. And now I, I don't want to sideline, but I think it's very important to mention the Quad, sort of this new term that we have, um, short form for the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which is an informal strategic dialogue between the US, Japan, and Australia and India. And well, this dialogue actually started um, in 2007, and it was an initiative by the Japanese prime minister. And this was as a response to Chinese economic and military power. And while this informal alliance faltered temporarily, President Biden is bringing the gang back together as a renewed alliance to erode China's dominance in various military and economic sectors. And they, in fact, met virtually in March for the first time. And so I don't think that North Korea is going to be exempt from pushback by the Quad members, um, especially because of its strong ties with China. So I think we're going to see strong pushback um, by the U.S. and by the U.S. allies in the region, namely India and, and Japan especially, against both China and North Korea. And I would like to add something onto that. I think it's very interesting that China is not willing to give much pushback to North Korea, especially in regards to any of its human rights violations or to any of its military violations. For example, when in 2016, North Korea launched that low orbit satellite, um, specific Western countries such as the United States or those other quad countries, as you mentioned, condemned North Korea for this action and asked them to remove the missile from orbit. However, China was hesitant to say anything. They did say that they disagreed with this action. However, there was no specific condemnation or statement was released to ask them to pull it down. Mm, interesting. So the U.S. is kind of building up a coalition of allies, or at least under the Biden administration, to to take on North Korea. But China remains stubbornly uh, close to North Korea. My question is, why? What what does China gain from some such close relations with North Korea, and where does it come from? So I'm going to start by saying ideological similarities between both regimes, and I think also worth mentioning is that. I don't think China wants to have a U.S. ally on the southern border. That's one thing. And another thing is also the fact that um, they fought by North Korea's side during the Korean War. So there's a lot of historical factors that play into this strong alliance that they have today. But I'm also going to say that when we talk about the human rights abuses that North Korea is perpetuating, it's similarly being done in China. So how do you call another country out when you're perpetuating the same thing? And... Go, probably going back to my ideological uh, point, 
is that there really isn't no other major country in the region that has nuclear weapons, um, that has a huge military arsenal, and that shares those ideological stances. I want to turn now to what the future holds for the North Korean uh, conflict. I know there have been attempts at peace in the past. What has gotten in the way at those strives for peace and what needs to change if peace is even possible for peace to take hold? Jackie, do you want to start with this one? Yes, I will. Um, in terms of the United States and North Korea, obviously we can see that the 2018 talks between these two countries failed. Um, this was in part due to the hostile nature of both President Trump and Kim Jong-un. However, with the Biden administration, Biden has said that it is one of his goals to improve relations with North Korea. However, since then, North Korea has ignored the Biden administration's efforts to reach out, saying that it won't engage while the U.S. holds on to its, quote, hostile policies. Um, however, there is still hope, especially considering that the Biden administration has said that they plan to focus on foreign policy. Um, one of my major concerns is how North Korea has reacted to the United Nations Security Council resolution in that even though the United Nations banned these missile tests, North Korea still chose to do so. And then it accused the United Nations of having, quote, double standards. So I think the option for the United Nations right now is the choice of whether to impose harsher sanctions or whether to release these a little bit because they're worried that it would further damage North Korea's relationships with the United Nations and the rest of the Western world. So it seems to be this careful balance of power between um, not treating them too harshly, however, ensuring that they don't push Kim Jong-un over the edge. Because as we've seen with his strict military and with his extreme nuclear program that he is not someone that should be provoked. And what about um, the importance of unity among uh, allies of the U.S.? Because I mean, we talked about how Biden's trying to build uh, alliances and coalitions uh, in Eastern Asia. But nonetheless, I mean, South Korea uh, and Japan have different interests than uh, the United States. How are they going to reconcile this interest and how, is it, how important is it that they do so? to take on North Korea. Okay, well, I think we should keep in mind that here the end goal that uh, all the allies have agreed on is for peace and stability uh, to reign in the Korean Peninsula and ultimately denuclearization of North Korea. And we should also look at, like, you know, Jacqueline mentioned and you mentioned, is this alliance um, forward stance that uh, President Biden is taking, whereas um, President Trump tried to go at it alone when it held negotiation talks with North Korea. So I think here we're seeing that the allies are agreeing that they need to come together, set their differences aside, because the threat that North Korea is posing is only increasing by the day, especially as we're noticing that they're modernizing their nuclear arsenal. In 2017, when North Korea launched those IRBMs, the DOD announced that those missiles were launched from the sea. And this fueled concerns about North Korea's arsenals because submarine-delivered missiles are harder to detect. And also, I think these tests are nothing new. We should know that North Korea has 
used um, these missile tests uh, and confirmed them in state media and declared them as an integral aspect of its sovereignty to, to, to the right to self-defense. So if this is the stance that North Korea is taking, then the allies have to push back equally hard and set those differences aside as they have agreed to do in, in multiple statements. Unity is really important to tackle uh, to tackle North Korea. And then I just want to end on a slightly interesting point because it's coming up soon. Harshana, what do you think the potential is for tension or even a, a new missile test during the upcoming Tokyo Olympics this summer? So the Olympics, like you mentioned, are starting in July. And the launches have already shadowed the start of the Olympic torch relay in Japan, um, which initiates a countdown to the Summer Games. And while I don't think that North Korea would go to the extent of launching another similar test close to Japanese waters, so close to um, to the Olympic Games, you know, they've proven a point of remaining unpredictable. So we should definitely stay on our guard. Like the Biden administration has already noted that they are monitoring the situation and they are looking out for signs of escalation. And they have also said that they will um, react sim in similar stance um, in case this happens again. Okay, well, I for one, I'm looking forward to watching those games. So I hope nothing too bad happens. This has been a fantastic discussion, Harshana. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. And that is all for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates and upcoming shows. This show would not be possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jared Dang, associate producers Jasmine DeLeon and Joaquin Matamus, technical producers Joel Moran and Brittany Segura, and assistant technical producer Jason Marieski. I am your host, Eric Bunce. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.